0: Chapter six of the Red River Colony, a chronicle of the beginnings of Manitoba by Louis Aubrey Wood. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter six Red River and Pembina. Scarcely had the settlers taken stock of their surroundings on the Red River when they were chilled to the marrow with a sudden terror. Towards them came racing on horseback a formidable looking troop, decked out in all the accoutrements of the Indian spreading feather dangling tomahawk and a thick coat of war paint to the newcomers it was a never to be forgotten spectacle but when the riders came within close range shouting and gesticulating it was seen that they wore borrowed apparel and that their speech was a medley of french and indian dialects they were a troop of bois brûlés métis or half-breeds of french and indian blood aping for the time the manners of their mother's people. Their object was to tell Lord Selkirk's party that settlers were not wanted on the Red River, that it was the country of the fur-traders, and that settlers must go farther afield. This was surely an inhospitable reception, after a long and fatiguing journey. Plainly, the Norwesters were at it again, trying now to frighten the colonists away, as they had tried before to keep them from coming these mounted half-breeds were a deputation from fort gibraltar the nor'wester's nearest trading post which stood two miles higher up at the forks where the red river is joined by the assiniboine nevertheless governor macdonell having planned as dignified a ceremony as the circumstances would allow sent to the Nor'westers at Fort Gibraltar an invitation to be present at the official inauguration of Lord Selkirk's colony. At the appointed hour, on September 4, several traders from the fort, together with a few French Canadians and Indians, put in an appearance. In the presence of this odd company, Governor Macdonnell read the Earl of Selkirk's patent to Assiniboia. About him was drawn up a guard of honour, and overhead the british ensign fluttered in the breeze six small swivel guns which had been brought with the colonists belched forth a salute to mark the occasion the nor'westers were visibly impressed by this show of authority and power in pretended friendship they entered governor Macdonald's tent and accepted his hospitality before departing at variance with the scowls of trapper and trader towards the settlers was the attitude of the full-blooded Indians who were camping along the Red River. From the outset these redskins were friendly, and their conduct was soon to stand the settlers in good stead. The provisions brought from Hudson Bay were fast diminishing, and would soon be at an end. True, the Norwesters offered for sale supplies of oats, barley, poultry, and the like, but their prices were high, and the settlers had not the means of purchase but there was other food. Myriads of buffalo roamed over the Great Plains. Herds of these animals often darkened the horizon like a slowly moving cloud. In summer they might be seen cropping the prairie grass or plunging and rolling about in muddy wallows. In winter they moved to higher levels, where lay less snow to be removed from the dried grass which they devoured. At that season those who needed to hunt the buffalo for food must follow them wherever they went. This was now the plight of the settlers. Winter was coming on, and food was already scarce. The settlers must seek out the winter hunts of the buffalo. The Indians were of great service, for they offered to act as guides. A party to hunt the buffalo was organized. Like a train of pilgrims, the majority of the colonists now set out afoot their dark-skinned escort mounted on wiry ponies bent their course in a southerly direction the redskins eyed with amusement the queer clad strangers whom they were guiding these were ignorant of the ways of the wild prairie country and badly equipped to face its difficulties sometimes the indians indulged in horse-play and a few of them were unable to keep their hands off the settlers possessions One Highlander lost an ancient musket which he treasured. A wedding ring was taken by an Indian guide from the hand of one of the women. Five days of straggling march brought the party to a wide plateau where the Indians said that the buffalo were accustomed to pasture. Here the party halted, at the junction of the Red and Pembina rivers, and awaited the arrival of Captain Macdonell, who came up next day on horseback with three others of his party. Temporary tents and cabins were erected, and steps were taken to provide more commodious shelters. But this second winter threatened to be almost as uncomfortable as the first had been on Hudson Bay. Captain MacDonald selected a suitable place south of the Pembina River, and on this site a storehouse and other buildings were put up. The end of the year saw a neat little encampment surrounded by palisades where before had been nothing but unbroken prairie as a finishing touch a flagstaff was raised within the stockade and in honor of one of lord selkirk's titles the name fort dare was given to the hall in the meantime a body of 17 irishmen led by owen caveney had arrived from the old country having accomplished the feat of making their way across the ocean to hudson bay and up to the settlement during the single season of 1812. This additional force was housed at once in Fort Dare, along with the rest. Until spring opened, buffalo meat was to be had in plenty, the Indians bringing in quantities of it for a slight reward. So unconscious were the buffalo of danger, that they came up to the very palisades, giving the settlers an excellent view of their drab brown backs and fluffy, curling manes. On the departure of the herds in the springtime, there was no reason why the colonists should remain any longer at Fort Dare. Accordingly, the entire band plodded wearily back to the ground which they had vacated above the forks on the Red River. As the season of 1813 advanced, more solid structures were erected on this site, and the place became known as Colony Gardens. An attempt was now made to prepare the soil and to sow some seed, but it was a difficult task, as the only agricultural implement possessed by the settlers was the hoe. They next turned to the river in search of food, only to find it almost empty of fish. Even the bushes, upon which clusters of wild berries ought to have been found, were practically devoid of fruit. Nature seemed to have veiled her countenance from the hapless settlers, and to be mocking their most steadfast efforts in their dire need they were driven to use weeds for food an indigenous plant called the prairie apple grew in abundance and the leaves of a species of the goosefoot family were found to be nourishing with the coming of autumn eighteen thirteen the experiences of the previous year were repeated once more they went over the dreary road to fort dare then followed the most cruel winter that the settlers had yet endured the snow fell thickly and lay in heavy drifts, and the buffalo, with animal foresight, had wandered to other fields. The Nor'westers sold the colonists a few provisions, but were egging on their allies, the Bois Brule, who occupied a small post in the vicinity of the Pembina, to annoy them whenever possible. It required courage of the highest order on the part of the colonists to battle through the winter; they were in extreme poverty and in many cases their frost-bitten, starved bodies were wrapped only in rags before spring came. Those who still had their plaids, or other presentable garments, were prepared to part with them for a morsel of food. With the coming of spring once more, the party travelled northward to the forks of the Red River, resolved never again to set foot within the gates of Fort Dare meanwhile some news of the desperate state of affairs on the red river had reached the earl of selkirk in scotland so many were the discouragements that one might forgive him if at this juncture he had flung his colonizing scheme to the winds as a lost venture the lord of st mary's isle did not however abandon hope he was a persistent man and not easily turned aside from his purpose Now he went in person to the straths and glens of Sutherlandshire to recruit more settlers. For several years the crofters in this section of the highlands had been ejected in ruthless fashion from their holdings. Those who aimed to quench the smoke of cottage fires had sent a regiment of soldiers into this shire to cow the highlanders into submission. Lord Selkirk came at a critical moment and extended a helping hand to the outcasts a large company agreed to join the colony of Assiniboia, and under Selkirk's own superintendence they were equipped for their journey. As the sad-eyed exiles were about to leave the port of Helmsdale, the Earl passed among them, dispensing words of comfort and of cheer. This contingent numbered ninety-seven persons. The vessel carrying them from Helmsdale reached the Prince of Wales of the Hudson's Bay Company, on which they embarked, at Stromness in the Orkneys. The parish of Kildonan, in Sutherlandshire, had the largest representation among these immigrants. Names commonly met with on the ship's register were Gunn, Matheson, Macbeth, Sutherland, and Bannerman. After the Prince of Wales had put to sea, fever broke out on board, and the contagion quickly spread among the passengers. Many of them died, They had escaped from beggary on shore, only to perish at sea, and to be consigned to a watery grave. The vessel reached Hudson Bay in good time, but for some unknown reason the captain put into Churchill, over a hundred miles north of York Factory. This meant that the newcomers must camp on the Churchill for the winter. There was nothing else to be done. Fortunately, partridge were numerous in the neighborhood of their encampment, and, as the uneventful months dragged by, the settlers had an unstinted supply of fresh food. In April 1814, forty-one members of the party, about half of whom were women, undertook to walk over the snow to York Factory. The men drew the sledges on which their provisions were loaded, and went in advance, clearing the way for the women. In the midst of the company strode a solemn-visaged piper. At one moment, as a dirge wailed forth, the spirits of the people drooped, and they felt themselves beaten and forsaken. But anon the music changed. Up through the scrubby pine and over the mantle of snow rang the skirl of the undefeated, and as they heard the gathering song of Bonnie Dundee, or the summons to fight for Royal Charlie, they pressed forward with unfaltering steps. This advance party came to York Factory, and, continuing the journey, reached colony gardens without misadventure early in the summer. They were better husbandmen than their predecessors, and they quickly addressed themselves to the cultivation of the soil. Thirty or forty bushels of potatoes were planted in the black loam of the prairie. These yielded a substantial increase. The thrifty Sutherlanders might have saved the tottering colony had not Governor MacDonald committed an act which, however legally right, was nothing less than foolhardy in the circumstances, and which brought disaster in its train. In his administration of the affairs of the colony, Macdonald had shown good executive ability, and a willingness to endure every trial that his followers endured. Towards the Norwesters, however, he was inclined to be stubborn and arrogant. He was convinced that he must adopt stringent measures against them he determined to assert his authority as governor of the colony under lord selkirk's patent undoubtedly macdonell had reason to be indignant at the unfriendly attitude of the fur traders yet so far this had merely taken the form of petty annoyance and might have been met by good nature and diplomacy in january eighteen fourteen governor macdonell issued a proclamation pronouncing it unlawful for any person who dealt in furs to remove from the colony of Assiniboia supplies of flesh, fish, grain, or vegetable. Punishment would be meted out to those who offended against this official order. The aim of MacDonald was to keep a supply of food in the colony for the support of the new settlers. He was, however, offering a challenge to the fur-traders, for his policy meant in effect that these had no right in Assiniboia, that it was to be kept for the use of the settlers alone. Such a mandate could not fail to arouse intense hostility among the traders, whose doctrine was the very opposite. The nor'westers were quick to seize the occasion to strike at the struggling colony. End of chapter six.